tell us a little bit about the new album, Mutatis Mutandis, which yes. I hope I'm saying right. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're saying it right. Yeah. Some, some people have messed it up. And it starts with a wonderfully scathing uh, song about the tea party, which perhaps gives a hint as to where your energy came from about making your first record in many years. Tell us yes. a bit about It came that. out of, the, you know, it's been about 12 years in brewing, and mm. I actually was nudged by a fan who's got in touch with me via email and said, you realize you haven't made a record in 20 years. I looked and I went, oh, no, I haven't. And then I thought about that. And then I looked at, at I don't know which artist it was, but I looked at an artist and I saw that they were constantly putting things out. And it was also kind of, I stepped away because also the music business was going through such drastic changes. Mm. There was hip hop and there was pop. And I wasn't hip hop and I wasn't pop. And so my music, I did, wasn't sure where it would fit within the landscape of the music business. But with this nudge from uh, someone, I began to look at what I'd been writing over time, and I'd been affected by the many things that have been happening in America, from the attack on the Twin Towers and 9-11, yeah. and then America becoming really polarized by the act of going to war and evading another country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the things that how America began to become this country that other countries or people began to hate, uh, going from what was considered a country that was democratic and spreading this, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of this, freedom of, you know, and also looking within the way America responded to its own disaster in Katrina yeah. in New Orleans and just really did not respond to help people there, and mainly because they were people of color. Mm. I don't think it would have happened that way otherwise. And then the rise of the bigotry and hatred out of America that was obviously hidden, most of it, Mm. uh, when Barack Obama started to run for Mm. uh, president. And just so many things that I thought we had grown from, out of, and changed, came back and almost was shocking to Mm -hmm. me Mm -hmm. and so a lot of the songs the tea party mad as hell battle the rush limbaugh you know i could not not write something and the the actual title mutatis Mm. mutandis in in latin it's sort of changing those things which need to be changed yes but but not making any major changes deeper resonant changes that that we perhaps need as well and it's coming out on righteous babe as well which seems to be a a good home for it because yes the the music business is not necessarily always no look out for albums that actually saying something political no they haven't been for quite a few years Mm. i mean there if those that do come out are either on small labels like righteous babe and you know not the sort of obvious pop grist for the mill kind of music toshi reagan who's a friend of mine, actually introduced me to Ani. So this is how that happened. Mm. And sort of let, let's go back a, a little bit in time to your sort of early beginnings uh, in, in the 60s when you were singing with Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. Yes. Tell us a bit about that time. There were so many girl groups around oh. at the time. What was what was the whole scene like? Was, was there any rivalry or camaraderie? Yeah. Who did you get on with? And... Um, well, I think we got on well with most of uh, the other girl groups. But yes, there was rivalry. We were just like, you know, what kind of wigs are they wearing? Because everybody was wearing wigs. And, you know, we couldn't have the same. You couldn't 
be on the show and have the same kind of gowns on. You, <laughs> especially if they were, you couldn't wear white. If they were wearing white, you had to wear another color. And also the songs. I mean, we were a lot of the different girl groups were doing. You had to find a big ballot that you could do that was your big number in your show. So you had to not sing the song that everybody else was singing. And, you know, Martha and Vandellas, we were good friends with Martha and Mary from the Supremes. Gladys of the Marvelettes and Ronnie and I, I've known Ronnie for years. Ronnie Spector. Ronnie Spector from the Ronettes. There were so many that you had to be competitive. But when you're on the show with different groups for a week at a time doing, you know, three and four, sometimes even five shows a day, Mm. you get to know each other pretty well and you do things, you know, like talk about clothes, where to go shopping and, you know. And then when boyfriends, you... girlfriends, <laughs> not girlfriends so much, boyfriends. Yes. <laughs> um, but then um, when you did, um, when that did break up, um, you became LaBelle. There was quite an image change. So tell us a little bit about uh, a changing image. Well, that was, you know, 1969, 70, going from, you know, the post Hate Ashbury flower power, painting flowers on, you know, on your face and uh-huh. dashikis and tie dye and things like that but and we went from being you know wearing wigs and nice gowns and gloves and singing oohs and ahs to afros dressing more like a rock band and really performing more like a rock band we you know we had guitars and we were doing songs by the who and the rolling stones Mm -hmm. and we met this group of guys who became our sort of fan club uh, following gay guys, Larry Legaspi, Richard Urker, Tony, and they just said, you know, we want to dress you, we want to make things for you. And uh, Larry specifically was the main designer, and he was into making cabling space-type clothing. Wow. And he designed, told us to ask us to come by his store, which was called Moonstone. <laughs> it was a moonscape, and he had these amazing things that he was making that we went and we saw and we went like those are amazing yes and he started designing them for us and that's where that came from and not long after that we had the hit with Voulez-vous Voulez-vous and that sort of we did that whole wear something silver tour and people came to the Metropolitan Opera House and they were just people who had silver carriages and you know they painted horses silver (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and nuns dressed in silver, and you know it was just an amazing night. You spent some time over in London, then, didn't yes, you? Yes, we did. In the UK. And yes. What was the scene like here then? It was actually great. I mean, we had a great time. It was kind of at the end of the British invasion in Carnaby Street, and that had already happened. This was in 1969, but it was really a good time because it was pre people with their entourage of security guards and things like that and it was also pre going into you know punk happened much later Mm. so there was this restless period but restless in a way that people could make music however they wanted to everybody was working with everybody yeah yeah Yeah. no boundaries yeah and one group that you supported at the time, you did some support tour with The Who, is that right? Yeah, we How did. How was that? Well, we were on the same label, on track ah. records, and Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp signed us to the label. They managed The Who and Jimi Hendrix, and The Who were going to America to do a tour, and they you know, said, well, we want the girls to open for The Who, which was like, 
that's maybe that may not be the right idea, <laughs> <laughs> but it worked. It was great. I mean, Brilliant. you know, playing to an audience that we were like, well, we're not sure how they're going to accept us, and we weren't even sure of what we were yet mm. because we were just finding by performing and, and recording what eventually became La Belle. I mean, mm. we were in that period of, of discovering and yeah. playing with music. But it was great. I mean, the audience, they were primarily young, white, rock kids, you know, and here we come out, these three black girls, not in your traditional sort of party dresses, and we weren't looking like the Ronettes. We were looking like kind of like a British boy band, <laughs> but they were great. I mean, once we s started singing, doing uh, Wild Horses, you know, there was music that they could identify with coming from people that they probably did not so much identify with, and it was an interesting mixture. And we talked a bit um, about how, you know, in, in the 70s you sort of became more of this sort of space age mm -hmm. kind of kind of group and obviously your your big hit that you had yes. around that time Lady yes. Marmalade did you have any idea how successful that might be none whatsoever <laughs> it was we were really going to make a new album and we somehow for some reason we went to LA and I can't even remember why we went to LA and Bob Crew lived there and Bob Crew was a bro building songwriter and he, I say was he is mm. you know because he's still alive and we went to visit Bob because Vicky Wickham who managed LaBelle knew Bob and he said come over and we were just staying up the road from him in the hotel and we went and of course you're a brill building writer you, here's a group sitting in front of you you're going to get out your songs and go yeah. you know <laughs> try this one on yeah and he did he just started playing these different songs on the piano ah. that he was writing or writing with other people and we were like yeah okay no well no not that no. and then he played and that was like basically we went what are you singing what does that mean because none of us spoke french <laughs> and he's you know explained it to us and vicky did speak french so she knew yeah and we were like wow that's great because it was a great hook and we were going to new orleans so we connected with the fact that you know she was a woman of the night in new orleans and mm. so we recorded it there and then uh, history yeah oh, absolutely i mean and how did that sort of change things for you Oh, drastically. Mm. I mean, up until that point, you know, we'd had success. Mm, uh, and really, we'd, you know, we'd come back and forth to Europe over the years performing, uh, but we didn't... This took us to, you know, playing, I guess, what arenas or uh, yeah. stadiums as opposed to playing theaters and clubs, which mm. is what we'd been doing for the... Uh, I think we've played some stadiums because we opened for the Rolling Stones when they mm -hmm. first toured America, mm -hmm. and wow. uh, so we had a you know a following a bit from of there. A taste of that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, and right. uh, and also opening for James Brown over time. So we we'd, wow. we'd had that happen, but we had didn't really have it on our own where we could in your own right. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm. So that changed, and it changed. I think you get gain a certain amount of confidence in terms of that you have an audience that is listening for what you have to say in a different way mm -hmm. than they did before. Right. And that changed. And I don't know. I think people also began to see us as more... I think we became unique in yeah. 
music history, Absolutely. which was, we didn't know that we were making history, you know, you see it in hindsight, but that that's what I think people, you know, so many people have said to me and to us over years that, you know, they turned on the, they went to watch television and, the sh and there were these three black women coming out of the ceiling dressed in feathers and, you know, and they were like, yeah. what is that? Wow. <laughs> and that we basically changed their lives. Yeah. Yeah. And so I inspired people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And when eventually LaBelle sort of parted ways, how did you settle on where you were going to go? Well, in fact, you've gone on many different directions with your solo. Yeah. Career. <laughs> yes. Well, what keeps inspiring you to try different things? I mean, you've done new age music, collaborated with all kinds of different people. When LaBelle sort of, I was part of it was about the fact that we were moving more and more towards rock and mm. really eclectic music and and Patty really is a much more traditional okay. person and she was able to embrace what we were doing as LaBelle because I think there was enough gospel and R&B in what we were doing and being the lead singer I guess she felt fulfilled yeah. in what we were doing but then I think she felt that she needed to go on to an individual sort of R&B you know mm. bring that classic thing back and I wanted to go more more <laughs> to rock and that's where I went with the first record I was you know to explore more of that and then because I didn't have a real desire to you know I had no desire actually to do music as a child that was not mm. something that I was not like oh I want to be in a band I want to be in a you know it's not didn't cross my mind it just kind of happened to me just through people that you met or? through Sarah Dash, who was the third member of LaBelle. Ah, okay. Uh, she was in a group yeah. and asked me to join the group for some reason. I don't know why. And I said yes for some reason. But had you had you sung much just yeah, to yourself? Just in church. Fun? And, yeah, in church. But, oh. but not with any idea hmm. of being in show business at all. And so that kind of just happened. And it's the songwriting that has kept me in music. Where I find my greatest pleasure is to be creative and mm. to write music and produce music and take the idea that I have in my head and have it, uh, it come out. Come out, yeah. yeah. And then engage people with it. So exploring other kinds of music is what also keeps me in it because it's nurturing for me and I get to, you know, I don't think it's about one kind of music that fulfills me it's more about okay so what's that over there you know yeah. let me see what that is about and and yeah. that's the great thing about art and creativity is that you can do it forever absolutely yeah well, tell us a bit about some of the really creative people that you've collaborated with. I mean, there's a, a whole oh. impressive list, including God. Prince, Peter Gabriel, <laughs> Laurie Anderson. I mean, oh, you know, uh, perhaps who's been one of the most sort of interesting people to, to well, work they're, with? They're, honestly, they're all, and I admire these people, and I admire their creativity, which is why I have a desire to work with them. And I'm very, very grateful and thankful that I get a chance to and that they're interested in working with me. So... You know, David Byrne from the Talking mm, Heads. Yes, and yes. I mean, you know, even the early days of working with the Rolling Stones and mm -hmm. then doing backing vocals with Wilson Pickett. You know, the many artists that we've worked with and that I've worked with and afterwards and collaborated with, they're just great 
artist and their music or their vocals or their singing ability are the things that I'm attracted to mm. and want to have a chance to work to with work them. With. Yes, absolutely. I mean, so um, one thing that I read was that one of your videos apparently caused a bit of a stir in the 80s on MTV because it featured drag queens and then it got removed from the playlist. <laughs> Tell us a bit about that. That was, well, before I say that, you know, one of the people who was the most influential in my music is, you may not even know, his name is Dan Hartman. Dan Hartman was a songwriter, singer. He wrote uh, Simply the Best, Bettina Turner. He oh, wrote great uh, song, yeah. I Can Dream About You. It's a song that he actually recorded. Um, he wrote, uh, he started when he was like 13, and he was. He also wrote uh, for uh, the Edgar Winter Band. And Dan was really a brilliant musician. He's written more, there are so many songs that you have heard that mm-hmm. he was a writer on, a co-writer oh, on. Okay. And Dan taught me a lot about producing my own music yeah. and instruments and technology. And so he, out of all the people I've worked with, was actually the most influential in what I do. Okay. And he unfortunately died of uh, HIV AIDS. And I miss him terribly because he was really kind of that musical, you know, other half mm, for me. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wanted to mention him because you asked me who was the most course, influential. Right, and, yeah. and actually, he, and there are many people out there who, who do know who he was. Well, I shall look him up now. Yeah, <laughs> See yeah, please do. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you asked Sorry. me. Sorry, so yes, I was asking about, um, well, I, I sort of piqued my interest because obviously we're, we're an LGBT show. And, yes. Um, you know, um, I, I was just kind of interested in this video that apparently yeah. caused a stir. Well, you know, MTV was like, I don't know what they were thinking at the time. And they had this thing about, you know, being this rock, I guess, heterosexual, misogynistic. Well, they not really any black artists until no, Michael no. Jackson, did no, they? No, no, no. The, the video was Keep It Confidential. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I also had on spandex, which they also claimed was not something that they <laughs> were, you know, I had on too much spandex. And had drag queens in the video and you know and they just refused mm-hmm. to show the video and not long after that there was David Lee Roth on out of what's the name of the band oh uh, Van Halen Van Halen yeah who had on more spandex than I had on mm-hmm. yes and yes. Van Halen looked more like drag queens than the drag queens <laughs> yes it's true in my video <laughs> yeah and uh you know, the long hair and the spandex, and it's like, we, hello, what's what was the problem? Mm. And I think it was really much more of a racial uh, issue. Yeah. And the next thing that happened was the band called Living Color was oh, going yeah. to, they were not going to show their video, and Walter Yetnikoff, who was the head of uh, CBS Columbia at the time, basically said, you will not get any Michael Jackson videos if you don't show ah. Living Color videos. Right. And that's what the big change that happened. And thank Walter for doing that because he broke that barrier that they had set up on color, gay, you know. I mean, it's just really... I mean, it's it's amazing, isn't it? Because it's not that long ago. Not that long ago. Incredible. It was a ridiculous attitude anyway because, you know, if you look at music business and you look at a lot of the guys who are performing, I mean, you go to Elton John, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it's like... What are you talking about? He, he, more feathers and more <laughs> makeup and more glitter, yeah. you know. And yeah. so, but I think it was the early days, and you had this sort of guy, boy, man mentality ruling 
you know. Yes, absolutely. So coming a little bit more up to date still, you've done some acting and particularly... Um, Very little. Well, a little <laughs> yes. bit, but, but what piqued our interest was you actually appeared in The L Word at the end of Series yes. 3, actually performing as yourself. Yes. Um, tell us a bit about that. I don't seek to act. I was invited to do it and uh, Betty... The, the band, the yeah. band who were do, doing the music pretty much yeah. for the show. They did the theme tune, didn't theme, they? Theme, and also Elizabeth was, I guess, the music supervisor for the show. Yes, and I know Betty and have known them for a while. And and Elizabeth wanted to do Transformation, and Pam Greer mm-hmm. I've known for years, and is a really sweet heart. Although she people she comes out very tough with her movie roles. Oh yes, yeah. And they asked me to come and be on the show. And mainly it's because I was going to be more like a music artist who was an old friend of Pam Greer's coming to visit her. And so it worked. I mean, acting is not something that I think I'm very good at doing. (laughs) It's it's a very different thing than performing and doing music. It's amazing how many musicians um, still have a a go and perhaps... I'm yeah, so it was, about. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was no, it was fun, and and my role was primarily uh, performing transformation yeah. with Pam, and I felt comfortable doing yeah. that. It's it's a it's a totally different thing. And did you watch the show at all? Oh yeah, yeah. I did. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I thought it was great. Mm. You know, and a lot of the shows that have come out of the, uh, you know, the cable television uh, part of America's media has really been breakthrough shows and. Mm. Oh, where definitely was yeah. Well, we haven't I mean, seen changed. many women in relationships on, no, on TV. Yeah, <laughs> at all. None. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think. probably right. None. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it really changed how a lot of people viewed lesbian or gay relationship. And more of my straight friends were watching it than you know. They were like, "Have you seen Elworth? Have you seen you know?" Oh, right. And you know, knew the characters and were. Some were falling in love with the characters. Yeah, oh, so it's very yes, yeah, Alice for me. Yeah, yes, yeah. okay. <laughs> you know, so it was really just a major uh, yeah. change. So yeah. I was really happy to be a part of it. And, mm. yeah. and another thing that you were a part of in two thousand and eight, I believe, was Cindy Lauper's True Colors tour. Yes, tell us a bit about that. Another great experience. I've known Cindy for a long time, being uh, primarily a New Yorker, and Cindy is such a New Yorker with her how she talks. She's from Brooklyn, um, <laughs> and so she asked me to come and uh, do the True Colors Foundation uh, performance, and, and it was great. And they raise money for LGBT. LGBT, courses. yes, for and the young choir who were some of the kids who are being having they've either they bought a house or they've converted a house in New York for young people who a lot of them have been you know kicked out of their homes because their parents are being hideous to them about being gay or, or mm. transgender and they have housing for them and it was great because the last performance was a group of the kids singing True Colors and everybody was like crying <laughs> but it was really really wonderful and mm. Cassandra Wilson, uh, Lou Reed, John Cicada, mm. so many people came and it's a wonderful foundation. Actually we share my studio space with True Colors Foundation. Right. So and I have the same manager, Cindy. Now, okay. So we we our lives and and paths have crossed for many mm. years, and Cindy's just really so devoted and so you know she's a great person. I, mm. I really like her. And now you live in New York. 
Um, I've lived in New York for a long time. About, many years. Yeah, many um, years. And can we ask about your, are you with your partner over there? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've we've been together since 1970. Yes, so is this Vicky? Vicky, yeah. Vicky Wickham. So we've, yes, we've been together uh, Longer than a lot of people have been born, <laughs> been alive. Yeah. Um, and, and so you, I mean, you've actually worked together many years as well. Yes. She was managing LaBelle. LaBelle. Yes. So how, has that been difficult? Has that put any strain on the relationship? Oh, yeah. Years? Yeah. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> like in any relationship, you have your difficulties. But I think the fact that I travel a lot, I'm on the road a lot. And <laughs> no, have true. space. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I have my life and the things that I do. She has gone on from uh, LaBelle and she had a life prior to that by producing Ready, Steady, Go, which was the big television show here, mm. which is where I first met Vicky. You know, so ha- I think having your own life and doing things that are not together mm. is very important and that I go away is very important yes. uh, and so it's it's been a great relationship wow well thank you so much for coming away to london and talking to us you're welcome <laughs> it's been brilliant to meet you thank you uh...